The book of Leviticus contains much instruction around what is known as the ceremonial law. And when we read therein in the book of Leviticus, perhaps then there are things to us as New Testament believers that are strange. There are many things here perhaps in this book of the Bible that we are simply unaccustomed to. And so, for example, in the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus, we read about the offerings and the sacrifices that were such a a central part of the Old Testament administration. We read about five different offerings there. We read about the laws and the regulations and the stipulations and, and when and why these offerings are to be carried out. In the New Testament, as believers, New Testament believers, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is that once for all offering for sin. There's now no longer any sacrifice. Christ has fulfilled all of those types in the Old Testament. And therefore, the sacrifices, the offerings of the Old Testament ceremonial law are perhaps to some extent a little foreign to us as New Testament believers. We could... Think about the feasts of the Old Testament. And again, this is something that we're completely unaccustomed to. There are other matters detailed here in this book of the Bible. And we read about those things that are prohibited by God. Because the Old Testament people of God, they had to remain ceremonially clean. And so there were those things that would contaminate them from their ceremonial cleanness. And and therefore there was prohibitions there, things that they weren't allowed to do. And if they accidentally became unclean, then there were stipulations, things that they must do, things that must be carried out if they were to be clean once more. All of these things perhaps are a little foreign to us, a little mysterious to us, but they all underline the holiness of God. All of this ceremonial Law, it underlines for us the holiness of God. We come today to chapter 25 of Leviticus. We have read a couple of segments from this chapter and we read about something that is called the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year. Again, something that is perhaps strange to us as New Testament believers, but we want to think upon the Sabbath year for a few moments together today. Now you think, why on earth has this man come to our pulpit for one Lord's Day and decided to take on the Sabbath year? It seems like an odd thing to do. Well, I was reading in in this chapter on Friday past, and I felt that this would be a suitable meditation for us today here in Coleraine. And we look at this Sabbath year, and we simply draw out some lessons from the Sabbath year. Because as the Lord gave this requirement, this instruction for the Sabbath year, the children of Israel would have to recognize certain things, and we can recognize certain things as well. We can learn lessons from this Sabbath year in the promised land, in the land of Israel. Firstly, what we have to recognize is God's control. God's control. You look at chapter 25. You look at those verses we read together. Verse 3. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune the vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. 
that which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest, thou shalt not keep, thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And so the Lord gives very clear instructions here for the people of Israel. When they get into the promised land, this is what is to be done. There must be this Sabbath year. This is to be carried out by God's people. It's very clear. It's very specific. The Lord is in control here. He gives specific commands. And so as God's people are to observe a weekly Sabbath, and you remember that's a creation institution, because the Lord created all things in six days, and then on the seventh, that was to be the Sabbath. The the example is set there, a day of, of rest, a day set apart unto the Lord. And of course, as New Testament believers, we continue in that. It's a creation institution. It's there from the very beginning of creation. We observe the first day as the Lord's day, the resurrection day. But just as there was to be a Sabbath in the week, now the Lord says to the people of Israel, when they come into the promised land, there is to be a Sabbath year. It's the same principle. The seventh year is to be a year of rest for the land. What does that mean? Well, the verses tell us what it means. Don't work the land. Don't work the land. Don't plant a crop. Don't gather a harvest. And don't plant a crop for next year either. Because this is to be a year of rest for the land. Now we naturally ask the question, why? Why does the Lord stipulate this? And we can advance, we can suggest some responses to that. And even in those responses, we see the Lord's control. We see the Lord's plan. We see the Lord's purpose in all of these things. It's been suggested that this Sabbath year would allow the soil to be more fertile. I'm not an agricultural man. Maybe you are. Good for you. I don't know anything about it. But even if you know anything about gardening, if you have a vegetable patch, you will understand that you don't grow the same vegetables on the same spot every single year because the nutrients, you've got you've to move about your vegetables. You've got to change them and put them in different places. Well, the rotation of crops wasn't exactly something that was carried out, it seems, the scholars tell me in Bible times. And therefore, to rest the land for a year That would mean the soil was fertile. That would help with the fertility of the soil. So that's one suggestion why the Lord was commanding this. Of course, it also underlined to the people of God that the land was not actually theirs. The Lord gave them the land. This was the promised land. The Lord graciously provided this land for them. He allowed them to work this land and to use this land but it was the Lord's land and it gave them correct perspective. They had to submit to him. It made the children of Israel depend upon the kind providences of God that they realized, well, for a year we cannot plant, we cannot harvest. Therefore, we're going to have to depend on the Lord to meet the need to provide for us. And they're recognizing that every good gift comes from the hand of God. It also gave God's people rest for a year. They could step aside from from the normal toil. And stepping aside from that, that it gave them space and time to serve the Lord more fully. It gave them opportunity to meditate on the Lord more fully. 
And in many ways, it's a picture of heaven, the Sabbath year. A place of rest. A place of praising God. That's what heaven is. And of course, that's what we see in the Sabbath year as well. And so, even suggesting some reasons why the Lord instructed the Sabbath year, we see the Lord's control. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Even if we don't see it, even if we don't understand, the Lord's in control. He has a plan. And what the Lord was commanding these people to do here in Leviticus must have caused at least some of them great concern. I think it would cause all of us concern. They must have worried about this. The Lord says don't plant a crop. Don't plant a crop. Don't don't plan for a crop. Don't harvest a crop. Don't prepare for next year. It's natural for man to say, well, how are we supposed to survive? This seems a little unwise to me. How will this work? Doesn't seem to make any sense. We have wives. We have children. How are they going to live? Surely this is unwise. What is the meaning? Why are we doing this? Leviticus 25 and the verse 20, the Lord speaks and he preempts what will be the response of some of the people. And if ye shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we sow, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. And so the Lord knows well that this is going to be the natural response of the people. What are we going to do? We're not to sow, we're not to reap. How are we going to live? It's a natural question. And yet, and here's what we've got to notice. The Lord still gave the command. It was a very clear command. And the people had to remember, though they did not understand, the Lord had given a command. They must obey and they must submit and they must remember that the Lord is still in control. Yes, the Lord had given a command they didn't understand. Yes, the Lord had given a command perhaps that they couldn't make any sense of. They can't explain this. They can't grasp it. But he gave the command. They must submit and they must remember that God is in control. And friends, oftentimes we just simply have to rest in the fact that God is in control. And when we are confused, And when we simply cannot understand things, when we don't understand why things have turned out in the way that they have, friends, God is still in control. In the midst of this chaotic world, you look at this world in which we live, when everything seems to be going in a negative direction. It seems that everything is against the Lord and his people. The plots of wicked men surround us. The gospel, God's word is detested by society. Christians are mocked and scorned. Anyone who stands up for the Lord is is seen as, as an extremist. Everything that is vile and wicked and abominable in the eyes of God seems that those things are embraced and celebrated by this world in which we live. And we can so easily become overwhelmed by that. We can almost slip into despair what is happening. And in those circumstances, we must step back and remind ourselves, regardless of what is happening, regardless of the schemes of the wicked one and his minions, God is still in control. He's in control. That does not change. We can be so easily overwhelmed, maybe in our own lives, 
on a more personal level. Maybe there are questions that we simply cannot answer. The Lord commanded Israel to to refrain from farming the land for a year and and that seemed like a a difficult thing to ask these people. They, They maybe didn't understand it and maybe in our personal lives the Lord is calling us to do something for him and we can't really understand why he wants us to do this. We cannot see why the Lord would desire us to go in this this certain direction. It's certainly not part of our plan. It's not a road we would have ever wanted for ourselves. It's not a path that we would have charted for ourselves. We don't know why he's leading, but he's leading in this way. We're certain of that. Then, child of God, we've got to submit to him and remember that he's in control. You think about the Savior calling Matthew, Levi sitting at the receipt of, of custom, publican, says, follow me. Matthew immediately submits and follows. That, that's the response we've got to have as Christians, even when we don't fully understand why the Lord is leading us in this direction. We obey and we remember that he remains in control. Maybe we're in the midst of some chaotic, some grim situation. We cannot understand why the Lord has allowed it to happen. Some of the Israelites must have wondered, why are we leaving aside this? Why is the Lord commanding us not to prepare to feed ourselves? But they simply had to trust the Lord and remember he was in control. That is simply the course of action we must take sometimes in the midst of trying circumstances. Trust the Lord, submit to him, and know he is in control. Maybe we're heartbroken. We've been wounded. Maybe even wounded by some brother or sister in the Lord. Someone has wronged us. Oh, God is not the author of sin. Absolutely not. We're very clear on that. God is light and him is no darkness at all. God is not the author of sin. But we cannot understand why these things have played out in the way that they have. Why has the Lord allowed these things to happen? And in those circumstances, we've got to simply remember that God is still in control. Though we don't understand. You remember Joseph's brothers, how they sinned against him. And they did sin against him. They sold him into slavery. Exceedingly wicked. His heart must have been broken. And yet when Joseph and his brothers were reconciled all of that time later, the closing chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50 and the verse 20, what did Joseph testify? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And Joseph could step back from that situation and say, I didn't understand at the time, but the Lord was clearly in control. when we don't understand what the Lord asks of us or when we don't understand why we're facing what we're facing child of God the Lord is still in control before I move on we think about this command that God gives to Israel that many must have been reluctant to observe This command not to to plant or harvest. Many people must have been reluctant to observe this. Reminds me of another commandment God has given to mankind. That many are reluctant to submit to. That many even reject. 
Because in Acts 17 and the verse 30, it says, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And there is a command that many, many men are reluctant to submit to. They will reject that commandment. In 1 Corinthians 1 and the verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. And the Jews couldn't tolerate this thought that their Messiah would be crucified on a Roman cross. The Gentiles just didn't grasp the gospel. It wasn't for them. And we look around us in this world and we see men and women who don't want to hear about the Savior and they don't want to be told that a Savior had to die because of their sins. And so they reject the command of God to repent and to be converted. I simply ask you this morning, is that you? Are you rejecting that command of God? Because I tell you, friend, if you're rejecting that command, you will pay the price. An eternal price. You need to submit to Christ. You need to come to him in faith and repentance. We see here, when we look at this Sabbath year, God's control. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And and even when we don't understand things, we've got to submit. He's in control. God's control. Secondly, what do we see here in this chapter when we think about the Sabbath year, we see God's provision. God's provision. You look at verse 21 of Leviticus 25. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And so the Lord has commanded these people something very specific here. You're to observe the Sabbath year. You're to abstain from agriculture, if you like, all of those kinds of labors on the seventh year. But the Lord did not leave them to fend for themselves. He didn't instruct them, lay aside sowing and reaping for a year and then leave them to starve. Not at all. He made provision for them. He guarantees them provision. Yes, he's requiring their obedience. Yes, for many this would be something of a leap of faith not to sow and reap for a year. But he promises to provide for them. Verse 21, then I will command my blessing upon you. And God is speaking to these people. He's speaking in the first person. This is the voice of God to the people. He is personally saying, I will provide for you. You obey me, don't worry, I will provide. There will be sufficient food for you. This is my promise to you. If you like, God was going to bring about a a bumper harvest on the sixth year to make sure that that the need was met. He he gave his word to the people. The Lord had done this before. You think about the children of Israel. You turn back to Exodus in the chapter 16 and you think about the children of Israel as they wander through the wilderness. And as they're going through the wilderness, how are they surviving? The quail and the manna, of course, that the Lord provides for them. The manna, that that bread from heaven that that failed to feed the people and they were to gather it every day of the week or rather six days of the week. It wouldn't come on the seventh day but there would be enough on the sixth day for two days. The Lord was providing. He was providing for the Sabbath. And so it is with the Sabbath year. He, He will provide for that year as well. He will ensure that the day prior or the year prior there's plenty there to survive all that time. 
Exodus 16, verse 29. See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. The Lord provides. Yes, I'm asking you to do this. But I'm going to provide for you if you do do it. And the people of God were to obey the Lord's command and in doing so they would know that their need was met. And here's the lesson we're underlining here. The Lord provides, child of God. Yes, sometimes he asks of us those things we don't understand. Sometimes he requires our submission and obedience to him to, to, to honor some command and we don't understand why and we don't understand how it will work out but we, we simply have to advance in obedience and in faith knowing that he is in control, exercising faith in him and while we do all of this, the Lord provides. God called the Israelites to trust him and to leave off farming for a year. And perhaps this was a real test of faith for many of them, but the Lord provided. What are you facing, child of God? What's the storm that's raging in your life? You don't know why the Lord has you in the midst of this. You don't know, you can't explain, but, but, but the Lord has instructed you to do something and you can't understand these things, whatever it is. If you're walking with the Lord in obedience to him, you know that he's there with you in the midst. The Lord provides for his people. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Christ says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, in our very weakest places as Christians, it's then that the strength of Jesus Christ is manifested so clearly to ourselves and to others. And therefore, Paul rejoiced in this. He said, I, I, I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, I rejoice when I'm weak because then the power, then the strength of Christ is manifested in me. The Lord is with us. The Lord provides. Matthew Henry speaks of this promise to supply their need in the midst of those years with, without crops and he makes a statement that was intended for encouragement to all God's people in all ages to trust him in the way of duty and to cast their care upon him. There is nothing lost by faith and self-denial in our obedience. And we can see in this example here, in this command, in this promise, if they obey that the Lord will provide, we can see encouragement, can't we? That the Lord is with us in the midst of the difficulties, and even those trying circumstances he calls us to face. God's control, he has a plan here, he has a purpose. This is not ad hoc. God's in control. God's provision, he promises to provide for the needs of these people when they submit and when they obey him. God's faithfulness, that's the final thought. God's faithfulness. You look at the verses 21 and 22 of Leviticus 25. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years, and ye shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. Verse 21 tells us that the sixth year, that's the year before the Sabbath year, would bring forth sufficient crops for three years. 
for three years. And so in the sixth year, there would be enough crop that is guaranteed to feed the people in that same sixth year, to feed the people in the seventh year when they're not doing any agricultural labor, and to feed the people in the eighth year because they haven't planted in the seventh. The Lord says there will be enough food. You walk this way that I have for you, there will be enough. You see, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He's ensuring that he would meet their need, not just for one year, but for three. The Lord is faithful. We're reminded of his faithfulness. He's ever faithful. He continues to provide. And surely that is a truth that we can attest to each and every one in our own lives. He continually provides for us as Christians. We, we can testify to that. The Lord is not wearied by our much asking. He continually meets our needs. He is faithful to us even when we're not so faithful to him. The Lord remains faithful to us. And some of the Israelites must have thought that the Lord's command here to leave off sowing and reaping it made little sense. Surely they would starve. This is not the path they would have chosen for, for, for themselves. And, and we know that God's ways are not always our ways. We can identify with how these people must have felt. But tell me this child of God, how many of us can look back at things that have happened in our own lives? Maybe doors that have closed that we would have liked to have gone through. And, and in hindsight we look back. And we see the Lord's hand in it all. The Lord had a purpose. You see, the Lord is in control. And he provides for us. We walk the path that he has for us. He, he provides for us and he is faithful. You be encouraged by that this afternoon, child of God. This Sabbath year, this Sabbath year, it, it, it points to heaven. We indicated that. It made way for, for rest and it made way for more time for the people to, to meditate on the Lord and, and to praise the Lord. And as we say, that, that's a picture of heaven. The Sabbath year, in some ways, it pictures heaven. I'm asking you, friend, are you going there? Are you going to that place called heaven? There's only one way. It isn't your good works, and it's not your church attendance. It's not your family name. It's not your upbringing. The one way is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says in John 10 and the verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Jesus Christ is the door. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to be reconciled to God. There is no other way. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came into this earth and lived a life of, of perfect submission to God's law, a life that we couldn't live. And then he went to the cross and he shed his blood, paying the price for the sins of his people. Rising from the grave, he's alive. And what does he say? Come on to me and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. Friend, you can know spiritual rest. You can be saved today. You can know eternal rest in that place called heaven that in, in many ways is, is pictured in this Sabbath year. But only if you come to Christ. Only if you repent of your sin. 
Only if you trust in him alone to save you. You can't save you, nor can anyone else. But if you trust in Christ, he can and will. Will you bow the knee to the Savior today? Will you cry out for God's forgiveness? Will you be saved? And know one day eternal rest awaits for you. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts today. And may he encourage us. Let's take our hymn books. We're going to sing again at this stage. Hymn 46. Though troubles assail and dangers affright, though friends should all fail and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the scripture assures us the Lord will provide. Wonderful words. What wonderful assurance the Lord will provide. We'll stand and we'll sing these words together. Second verse, I'll go to the door. If you have to leave, you're free to do so at that stage. But again, as our brother says, if you know and love the Lord, then you're welcome to remain with us as we stay around the table for a little.